Hello, my name is Nicola Torbett, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or surge, and specifically of surge faith and surge action. This is the podcast where we put the weekly scripture readings into conversation with the realities of our times, which this week means concentration camps on our border, the looming threat of mass immigration sweeps and possible war with Iran, the ongoing crises of mass incarceration and widening racial and economic inequality, an escalating war on bodies with uteruses, and exponential climate change. And we ask what it means in this environment of dramatic inequity and violence to follow a homeless, brown-skinned rabbi who lived and taught and ministered and died under military occupation in a tiny vassal nation of a mighty empire. Or more specifically, what does it mean to follow this Jesus when we are positioned more like Roman citizens than like Jesus' first disciples? Because we are a project of surge, this podcast primarily addresses white Americans citizens of modern-day Rome. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. We welcome everyone to listen in, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. Wow, my friends, I'm wondering how you are holding up. It has been a terrible few weeks as the president and his administration whip up a frenzy of horror all around us, and reading my daily news feed gives me attentional whiplash as one catastrophe after another screams headlines at me. I've been spending way too much time on social media these days, scrolling and scrolling as I look for something. I think I'm looking for the answer, you know, I'm looking for how we're going to fix this, and the answer is just not there. So I just keep scrolling. It's the opposite of life-giving. It's soul-sucking. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to take a few deep breaths with you, to ground in the knowledge that we are part of something so much larger than ourselves, and to center in on this week's gospel passage and see what that suggests to us about how to be and what to do in this time. Let's jump in. The gospel passage for this week is Luke 10, verses 1 through 20, commonly known as the sending of the 70 or the 72, depending on which gospel you're reading. In Luke's narrative, this passage comes shortly after Jesus explains to his disciples twice, in short order, that he is going to be betrayed, arrested, and handed over to be killed. He has now turned toward Jerusalem, set his face toward Jerusalem, as the scripture says. And for the rest of ordinary time, 
were going to be accompanying him and his disciples on that last fateful journey. And already it's not going all that well. In Luke 9, Jesus and the disciples enter a Samaritan village, but the scripture says the people there did not welcome him because he was going to Jerusalem. But as you might recall, the disciples get offended by these inhospitable villagers and ask if they can rain fire down on them. Of course they do, right? But Jesus says, no, no, you don't get to rain fire on anyone. No raining fire. And they keep moving inexorably toward Jerusalem. That brings us to this week's passage. The lectionary reading goes through verse 20, and it also leaves out some challenging stuff from the middle. But I'm going to add those verses back in and end with verse 16 for today. Here it is. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But at the judgment it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So that's the scripture. Often we read this passage with the assumption that we are the disciples in question, right? And we're receiving instructions here. We are the eager laborers who have, been, who have signed up for the harvest. We are the ones being sent out like sheep among wolves to bring good news to anyone who will receive it. And that's a valuable way of reading this text. But I want to suggest for this week that we who are white, documented American citizens are actually more like the villagers on the route from here to Jerusalem. We might become disciples, we might be converted and drop everything to follow. That's the hope. But in this story, we were more like the villagers 
And the question is, will we welcome the messengers being sent to us? Will we welcome those who themselves have been sent out like sheep among wolves? Read this way, the passage is all about hospitality. Will we welcome those who are being sent to announce that the kingdom of God has come near? Or will we be like Sodom? Of course, when we hear Sodom, most of us think homosexuality. We think maybe, depending on how we are positioned, uh uh-oh, clobber passage ahead. But there is nothing in Luke's story about homosexuality. Luke's story instead is about hospitality, the type of hospitality that was denied the two strangers who visited Sodom. Let's take a quick detour back to Genesis chapters 18 and 19, just to be clear about what is and isn't in that story, which is invoked here. It starts with three men who suddenly appear under a tree outside Abraham's tent, remember? And Abraham, not knowing who they are, welcomes them, washes their feet, feeds them, and gives them water to drink. In return, they announce that Abraham's wife, Sarah, would have a son, and that would make Abraham and Sarah the parents of a great new community of people destined to be a blessing to everyone, everywhere, for all time. So these visitors are clearly some kind of angels, right? Or at least messengers of God. And this is a very important tradition in the times in question, that strangers, visitors, are to be welcomed as ambassadors from the divine and bearers of important, even potentially salvific news. But the story goes on. Then the visitors, now there are two, and it's not really clear where the third has gone. But anyway, the two go down the hill to the village of Sodom where they plan to camp out for the night in the public square. But Lot, who lives in Sodom, insists that instead they come inside his house. He offers them hospitality, dinner, and a place to sleep. I hope you're hearing the echoes in Luke's description of how the disciples should be greeted. It's a good thing Lot does that, because soon his house is surrounded by men who demand access to the visitors because they want to rape them. Much has been made about the men wanting to rape men, as if the important issue were the gender of the visitors, when really the sin is the absolute abject failure of hospitality, and the replacement of hospitality with brutality and abuse. I hope you're hearing this. So then, the visitors escape by striking the townspeople blind. This blindness is interesting to me, the ways that our own lack of hospitality renders us unable to perceive what is actually happening. And then Sodom is destroyed for its failure to welcome strangers, strangers who are understood to have come from God. That's the story of Sodom that is being invoked in today's gospel passage. And Jesus says it will be better for the people of Sodom than for the town that does not welcome and heed Jesus' disciples. Whoever listens to you listens to me, he says, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You know where I'm going with this, right? You know why we're talking about hospitality and its brutal abusive opposite this week, don't you? It will be more tolerable 
for Sodom. If we, as white Americans, are the villagers who may or may not offer hospitality, then the disciples, the messengers sent from Jesus to announce Jesus' imminent arrival, those messengers are migrants. They are so-called black identity extremists. They are trans women of color. They are unsheltered people living in tent encampments in our cities. They are queer as queer can be, and they are undocumented. And what is the message they are bringing us? The kingdom of God has come near. What does this mean? What can this possibly mean? As more and more information leaks out about conditions in Border Patrol holding facilities and detention camps, and as I think and think and think about what kind of action might actually address this latest crisis, and as that thinking leads me to recognize that this wave of migrants is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to refugees that will be soon be fleeing climate disasters and ever-widening economic disparities between the U.S. and other parts of the world, I think the message these migrants are bringing is that everything must change. Everything about how we've been living and about how the U.S. has been operating must change, and soon. It's not just that we're going to have to learn to practice hospitality, and in ways we've never imagined, although that is certainly true. It's that we're going to have to rely on each other across every kind of division, border, difference, and barrier, in ways that we have never imagined. And we're going to have to be willing to be changed by the messengers being sent to us. Like Abraham, we are being challenged to believe that something unprecedented, something that seems entirely impossible, is about to happen. Everything is going to change. In the transcript of this episode, I'll link to some good articles about the root causes of Central American migration to the U.S., but essentially the migration we are now seeing is both the result of U.S. intervention in the region in the service of U.S. interests, think Dole Corporation, think Chiquita Bananas, and also the beginning of what some are calling climate apartheid, whereby the poorest people will be the hardest hit by climate change. As Lauren Markham writes in The Guardian, Violence and environmental degradation are inextricably linked, and both lead to mass migration. An unstable planet and ecosystem lend itself to an unstable society, to divisions, to economic insecurity, to human brutality. The international drug trade, largely bound for voracious U.S. markets, also plays a role as people are being driven out of their ancestral lifeways, fishing, farming, and forced to enter into underground economies to survive. And then that causes escalating gang violence. All of these factors are leading people to leave home for the U.S. No one wants to leave home. As Warson Shire has written in what has become maybe the most quoted poem of the year, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And in many parts of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, the sharks are circling. And if those migrants are headed for Jerusalem and the violence that awaits there or here, 
then we are too. Our destinies have long been intertwined. It's the fundamental nature of reality. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. But in order to enter in, we are going to have to let go of our certainties, all that we think we know of what is possible or impossible. The backlash against asylum seekers is stemming from the belief that the U.S. can't absorb all these migrants, that we can't support so many more people, and from a certain angle that does seem impossible. But so did the birth of Isaac. So did the birth of Jesus. So did the birth of a salvific people announced by strangers so long ago. There are no easy answers. There is no solution that requires less than everything from us. Everything meaning drastic efforts to slow climate change. Everything meaning the sharing of resources across borders. Everything meaning maybe even the dissolution of nation states as we have known them. Maybe the whole way we organize the world is going to flare out. Breathe. Keep breathing. Everything meaning the turning to indigenous leadership in this time of upheaval. Everything meaning cooperation with people in other parts of the world. Everything meaning acknowledging and honoring our interdependence, our desperate need of hospitality from each other as we enter into these unknown and turbulent times. Maybe this week we celebrate Interdependence Day as much as Independence Day. Because that's the thing. Hospitality, interdependence in the time of Abraham and Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, even Jesus, was a matter of life and death. Hospitality was a matter of life and death for those disciples sent out like sheep among wolves. This is the current day reality from which our privilege as Americans has insulated us. This is our temporary blindness, our inability to perceive accurately that actually we need each other to survive. And I think that privilege is going to be stripped away from us sooner rather than later. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is like that, and let's admit it, we've always known that discipleship is supposed to require everything of us, right? My first pastor, Lenise Pinkard, always says, discipleship is not a bolt-on accessory. It requires the reconfiguring of our whole lives. The visitors coming to us from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador are offering us the opportunity to become disciples, harbingers of a new kingdom, to experience a conversion, to join in something risky and mysterious and beautiful. There's no answer on social media. There's no answer that has yet been written. Only graffiti scrawled on the walls pointing the way because the answer is a life, a newness that is beyond our current imagining and more wonderful than we ever could have dreamed. I found some of that graffiti on Facebook, actually, in all my scrolling this week. Alexis Pauline Gums, one of my favorite modern-day prophets, wrote this last week, and I think it points to that ineffably beautiful life to come. She writes, Imagine a whale. 
Imagine a whale so slick, so sleek, so sharp, so smart, that she cannot be identified at sea, has never been seen alive, and remains elusive even in death. A stranded whale washed up near Santa Cruz just this month, and they were so excited because they thought it was you, so excited that they euthanized the whale and did genetic testing. Turns out it wasn't even you, you Carmen San Diego of the sea. Imagine a whale so good at what she does that you can only imagine her based on your own mistakes. You wake up in the night and think, I must be missing something. And that is her, the something somewhere you can't see. Imagine a whale represented on Wikipedia by a black outline the thickness of an iPad stylus, a wanted poster that doesn't know what it wants. They make legends about you because that's all we can do. You make me think of that story about God existing in three forms, and we could only touch the one who could die. When God, God got here in form, the best we did was make him die. A story like that. Imagine a species that studies whales. Imagine a species very good at killing whales. Imagine a species who wants to know, but only learn to know by killing. Imagine a form of study that can only study which stays in form. Imagine a form that must inform itself by capturing life in the form in which it can be captured, which is death. Imagine a particular history of thought, thought up by enslavers and murderers. Imagine what it will do every time with life beyond its reach once it reaches. Imagine living life, scientists stuck trafficking in death, trying to know. Imagine this, that what you already can know is made up of a bloody story. Because there is life undocumented, unknown, and all the better for it. But once I reach the shores of your imagination, it's too late. Once you think of me, I'm gone. And there is something precious in the wanting, the mistake, the persistent identification, the break. Listen, you are out there somewhere. And if you learn in time not to kill yourself and all of us, it will be because you wanted something that you have never seen. A life. A life you still cannot imagine. That's Alexis Pauline Gums. And friends, that life is out there. It is arriving right now on our border. It is gesturing, beckoning from the margins of our awareness throughout this country. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Amen. Can we talk about hospitality? Because I'm not particularly good at it. I'm an introvert. Honestly, being around a lot of people makes me anxious and tired. 
a few weeks ago, someone told me with great excitement that she now has business in my neighborhood several times a week and might drop by sometime, and my heart sank. I don't like surprise visitors. Like I said, people make me anxious. Sure, I like to have people over from time to time for time-limited visits that are planned out weeks in advance. And I have to acknowledge how much of a privilege it is not to have to exchange more frequent and impromptu hospitality. It is an immense privilege to live in a home with doors that not only close but lock. Privacy is a privilege, and it comes at a cost that, like the cost of most of our privileges, is paid by other people in other places. The wealth that pays the rent on my space has been generated on the backs of other people, some of whom have no place to live now, some of whom are in tent encampments in my city, some of whom are in concentration camps on the border. I can't help but feel like I need to work on my own willingness to offer hospitality as a step toward the only kind of life that is going to be livable in the age of upheaval we are entering into. So I guess that's my first challenge to you this week, to think about your own willingness to extend hospitality. How often do you open your home and to whom? How do you make those decisions? I'll never forget one of those first hard conversations I ever participated in about racism. We've all been in those conversations, right? I was new to them at the time. I had just come to the church that I now call home, First Congregational Church of Oakland, which is and has been for some time a multiracial congregation. And we were talking about racism within the church. And one black woman said to the white members, you all talk a lot about anti-racism, but I've never been invited over to any one of your homes. I will never forget that. How are we going to build a new world together if we don't let each other into our intimate spaces? Who do you invite into your home and why? Are you willing to stretch a little? Have people over who have never been there? Do you maybe even have space to sponsor someone while they're in the asylum process? That means providing housing and some transportation assistance. You can look at the resources in the transcript for more information on how to be a sponsor. And there's a special need right now for sponsors for transgender migrants. If you can't host an asylum seeker, and I know that's a big ask, you can certainly find out about accompaniment and rapid response networks in your area by Googling the name of your city or town with the words ICE rapid response or immigration accompaniment. These efforts are a great way to build the beloved community right there where you live. You can also check out Detention Watch's National Defund Hate campaign. The link is in the transcript. Let us know how it's going. You can always communicate with us by posting on our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. 
The music you hear on this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Yeah.